0: Welcome to One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino, and my producer is Michael Von Cannon. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Today's show takes Hemingway at his own premise. We ask our guest a very simple question, his choice for Hemingway's one true sentence and why, and then, as Hemingway writes, go on from there. We're delighted to welcome Kavai Strong Washburn to One True Podcast to discuss his choice to talk about Hemingway, and Kavai's own writing, and wherever else that leads us. Kavai Strong Washburn was born and raised on the Hamakua coast of the Big Island of Hawaii. His first novel, Sharks in the Time of Saviors, has received numerous awards, including the 2021 Minnesota Book Award. It was selected as a notable or best book of the year by over a dozen publications, including the New York Times and Boston Globe. And most exciting for us, Sharks in the Time of Saviors won the 2021 Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Novel, so we are honored to be joined by its author, Kavai Strong Washburn. Kavai, welcome to One True Podcast.
1: Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. So
0: what is your One True Sentence and why?
1: So the sentence I selected comes from Hemingway's short story, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, and the sentence itself that i selected is near the end of the story i think it's within the last depending on how it's printed it's in the last page or two of the story in which one of the waiters from the cafe in which most of the story takes place there are two waiters in a cafe and there's an old man that's there drinking at the end of the cafe's night and these two waiters you know they have their discussion about the who that this old man is and when it's all said and done that scene is over the older waiter leaves the cafe after they've closed up and he stops at a, another place uh, to have a drink of his own or even just to stop there for a second. And when he's there, in his head, he's thinking, and, and that's where this, this particular sentence comes from in his head. And this sentence is, some lived in it and never felt it, but he knew it all was nada y pues nada y nada y pues nada. Now, why does that jump out at you? yeah so i was trying to find a sentence you know as much as you can say like one true sentence which i think is a very i that's a noble there's a very noble pursuit right to have one true sentence and i think you know authors writers always strive for some level of veracity right you want what's happening on the page to speak of some i would say some bigger truth something you can't just get from i don't know reading facts and figures or things like that but if you can speak to some bigger like emotional truth i think that's one of the things people really enjoy about literature is when you Somebody writes, they describe a feeling or a thought or something, and it's described in a way you've never, you've never seen or felt it before, and it somehow illuminates and enriches your understanding of the world and the human experience and all those sorts of things. And so I think, for me at least, I don't want to put words in Hemingway's mouth, obviously, but for me, when when Hemingway says, you know, write one true sentence, for me, the truth part of it is speaking to that. It's like your ability to take some bigger, unnamable or unknowable thing. And render it in language in such a way that it feels like true, and it feels true in a way that you're like nobody has ever said it that way before. And now I understand this thing differently than I did did before. And, and specifically, you know, when looking at this story, I think that also kind of contains the entire story in it. The essence of the story for me as a reader is contained in that specific sentence when he's when the the narrator is talking about saying, you know, some lived in it and never felt it. But he knew it was all nada y pues nada e nada y pues nada. He's, for me, the story you can see over the course of the story, the two bartenders that are working at that cafe, or not bartenders, the two waiters that are working at that cafe are having this discussion about this old man. And it's really not a discussion about the old man, at least for me as a reader. That's the way I read it. I see it as a discussion about bigger things. They're talking about life, essentially. And this this older man, this older gentleman that's at the bar drinking, that doesn't want to leave yet, The older waiter clearly understands something about that old man that the younger waiter doesn't and so it becomes a contrast about youth versus age and you know hope and optimism and 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 maybe brashness versus experience and you know like a larger ambivalence about the world and it becomes the whole story is about those two things existing in this this one moment and in particular for the older waiter the things he has experienced in his life that That boiled down to this idea of it was all nothing right or it was not a quest was nada and he goes on to then sort of take the 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 Lord's prayer and he recasts it with this nothingness at the center because I think he's really grappling about this larger issue of of you know life and and soul, the soul, and like what does life mean right He's getting at this question of like the meaning of life. And when he's sitting there at the bar and he's thinking about that, and he's saying some lived in it and never felt it, but he knew it, he's talking about himself. He feels like he has an understanding of the world that a lot of other people don't, or he feels a certain version of the world that many people don't. And this nothingness is at the core of it, right? And so that sentence in the story is like, it's all of that at once. So that's that's why I selected that sentence.
0: He uses the word it three times in a row, right? Lived in it, never felt it, but he knew it. So, and I think Hemingway is particularly masterful at using the word it, where it's, it's, it is ambiguous, but it's still powerful. What do you think that it is that is being referred to in this sentence?
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing that's beautiful. I think that you can read this a variety of different ways, right? I think. I, I can never land exactly on what I would think it is because this is one of those stories where I've read it and I can keep rereading it. And I never understand exactly what it is that it does to me. Right? But I, yeah. I think for some, for me, I think when I first read this story, I was, I, I was old enough to have. So I understood, I had some experience and understanding of death and grief. And I think by the time I read the story, I was in my 20s, right? And so I was also at a stage in my life where I was starting to ask bigger questions, like existential questions. And so for me, I think one of the things that made the story particularly resonant for me is when at the very end of the story, the the narrator goes home and he tries to go to sleep, right? And this has been alluded to earlier in the story, that there are issues with insomnia and things like that. And he calls himself as being among the people... That, that need a light, a clean, well-lighted place sort of to help them get to sleep, to help them get to that point where they're at peace, right? And so I think that the it that he's talking about here is the same it that keeps him up at night, that makes him unable to sleep. And then the the sentence, the very last sentence in the story, which I love because I feel like it turns, for me, the first time I read that, I was like, what just happened? Like, I finished it and I was like, wait a second. But the thing that was really interesting is when I finished reading the story the first time, and I can still remember this, I felt this strange, like kinship with the narrator that i think that i hadn't ever quite read anything that i felt at my the point i was in my life and this story lined up perfectly where i was dealing with all these existential issues and getting a sense that like you know life and death are very hard to understand and you can have a lot of feelings about you know what comes after this like what happens after we die right and it's like such a scary thing to think about and when i think about it in this story that he uses i feel like it has to do with that it has to do with death It has to do with God or whatever things are that are bigger, that are outside of us. And when he's talking about that, he believes, the narrator believes, and again, this is just my reading of the story. The narrator believes that he has some understanding of that, of like the great beyond or what the meaning is of what comes after this, and he feels it and lives in it in these sorts of moments when he's at the cafe at the end of the night and everybody else is gone and it's quiet and the lights are still on that moment where he gets to exist in that space there's some peace he gets from that that allows him to be more at peace with the idea of maybe nothing happened after we die maybe there's nothing maybe all of this means absolutely nothing and we die and everything everything else is just meaningless you know so i think there's something about the it is something right in that space right of that like unknowing and and no, you knowing afterlife. It, it, as you
0: say, the last word of this story is is it. Many must have it. And yeah. <laughs> in, in that sense, it, it could be referring to insomnia, but who's to say that it refers to the same thing every time that he uses the word it? And if yeah. he named what it actually was, you wouldn't have these new readings every time that you came up with. So it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a beautiful way to to think about it. Stay tuned for this word. Hi, everybody. We want to announce the publication of One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art by Michael and me. The introduction is by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Please see OneTruePod.com for more information. This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Um, so you mentioned that you you came across this story in your twenties. What has been your experience reading Hemingway and either in your education or just your own personal curiosity?
1: Yeah, so I actually for whatever reason, when I was in high school, like our English classes that we had in high school, I didn't end up reading any Hemingway in high school, right? So I think, I don't know, they just alternate different books. And you read some something from the classic, quote, unquote, classic American canon at some point in in high school, but I didn't, uh, there was no Hemingway when that happened. I I can't remember what we read. And, but it wasn't, it wasn't Hemingway. It might've been The Great Gatsby or something. I can't remember. Was this in Hawaii? it was yeah yeah and so it wasn't until college like i said i was in a college english class and it this story was in the anthology that we had for that class and the thing that's funny is i don't even think it was a sign i think i was reading through this anthology later at some point um i think i still had it around in my You know my the room that i in that with my roommates and all that whatever house i was living in at the time um it was there and i just i think i happened to be flipping through it or i had been like i don't know i think this might have been the first thing i read by hemingway it's hard for me to remember because this at this point is almost 20 years in the past but i i I think that this might have been the first story the first thing i ever read by by ernest hemingway so maybe that's why it has such a strong impression um on me but this this was like the i think the first story
0: it's like a 3 or 4 page story, so it's a low risk to kind of see what it's all about, right? And exactly. as a writer yeah. as a writer I wonder how you react to somebody who writes such a um a story in such so few words, such uh so few pages. It must be quite a feat to do that.
1: It is, absolutely. I think it's the hardest thing I probably write novels because I'm really bad at writing short stories. <laughs> no, I am, you know, because I mean, I, I think a lot of our writers, published writers, I think for most people, the track tends to be you start out with short stories because you can send those out and get them published. It's kind of like you can you can work your way into becoming a published writer more easily through writing short stories because there are many more venues to get them published and there's no over, you don't have to go through an agent and it's a, it's a lower overhead for, for literary magazines to read your short story than it is for somebody to look at your entire manuscript of a novel. Right. And so between that and the fact that a lot of writers come through, I didn't come through an MFA program, but a lot of writers come through an MFA program and the MFA program, I feel like it gears you up to publish short stories and things like that as part of your, your larger, you know writing and it gives you space as a writer you can experiment with a lot of different things and try a lot of things out in a short story and you know at the end of the day if it fails or doesn't work you, you throw it away but it's you know max probably 15 20 pages for the most part and usually much shorter uh and so if I, I think for a lot of writers it's also not only is it a way to try to break into the industry as far as becoming published but it's also a way for you to hone your craft and so. I think that it's unfortunate that for a lot of people, that's the perception of short stories and their experience with short stories is like, oh, this is how I figure out how to be a writer. And then I write novels because for me, I think that really good short stories are fantastic and they're really, really hard. And I think because of the length, a lot of people are like, oh, a short story is not that hard. You know, It's not as hard as a 800 page novel or whatever. And I'm like, no, it's actually a lot harder in my opinion Um, because you really have to figure out what, what is this about? What is this thing I'm writing about? And you have to like distill it to its very essence, right? Yeah, and well, um, like a four-page story is like, and one it's this effective, you're just like, dang, these, like, that is really hard to do.
0: <laughs> yeah, very compressed. The what, what you're saying about like what is this about? When you uh, with with what we're talking about with one true sentence in mind, when you sit down to write your novel, are you are you saying I want to write about Hawaii or I want to write about I want to do something in magical realism, or are you dealing is your inspiration on a sentence by sentence basis? how did How did you approach your work?
1: So for me, things at a sentence by sentence level are really important. and I think that most writers that come to writing through, say, for instance, either poetry or or the kind of quote unquote literary writing, right? And so this is like we're not talking about mysteries or romance novels or things like that. and I'm not disparaging those because I think those are all great in their own ways but they typically have less to do with you know honing the craft of your writing at like a word by word sentence basis and they have more to do with delivering on some bigger you know enjoyment of a plot and characters and things like that and these are all good things and it's it's good but for people that come from a poetry or a you know like quote unquote literary background you have this focus on the basic like the building blocks of a story which include word choice and sentences and sentence structure right and so for me the books that i enjoyed when I when I first started thinking about writing some of the books at that point that I encountered, including short stories like this. Right. And these are the kind of things like when I first started reading, it was science fiction and fantasy and, and like young adult literature and things like that, because I started reading when I was young and, and I loved those books. And so for a while, all I read were things like thrillers and science fiction and fantasy. And then sometime in, in late high school, college, I started reading things that were in kind of the classic quote unquote, literary realm. And that was when I started having experiences like this, right, where I would read something and I was like, what just happened? I have a feeling now, there's something happening with this story and the way I feel about the world that has more to do, it's not just entertainment and sort of like fun imagination in my mind, but it's like talking about the human experience, right? And I think once I started looking at that sort of writing, that was when I started really thinking about how much can you do with a sentence, right? Because that's the thing. You like a whole story, short story, can sometimes turn on one sentence, right? You read the sentence, and you're like, right there. Like, if you really read deeply, you'll be like, this moment, this sentence, well, like, flip the whole story.
0: Well, do you think a novel can turn on one sentence too?
1: I think so. I I think so. I don't, I haven't read. I can't think of a novel that I read closely enough in like the rereading of it where I was like, oh, this entire novel. Turns on this one sentence, but I do think you can you can pretty readily identify scenes and even whole chapters or whole sections of a novel that turn on on one sentence. I think you can find those things, but whether or not you could collapse an entire novel's everything it's about to one sentence, I'm not sure. I'm sure that, that better writers and better readers than me could probably do that, but I I have yet to figure it out myself. So if you're
0: thinking about your novel, uh, it, there's not one sentence that either let's say, was sort of, was the fountainhead of the entire project. It was more of an idea or an attitude in approaching your work. Is that true?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. And I think I certainly, especially in the revisions of the novel, I I think I do start to understand places that, parts of it that resonate really strongly with a given section Right. And so, for instance, I can think of moments in the relationship between characters in which I'm like, oh, well, their entire relationship is defined by this, this sentence. Right. Because you could maybe even take it to a scene level and you're like, I know this scene is kind of the scene that really unlocks their relationship. And then within that scene, you can be like, okay, well, within the scene, where is that moment where that happens? And then you can find kind of a sentence or so around there that happens. But I don't write, I don't think I started any particular section writing from that. I think in the revision process, you start to be like, oh, I'm going to sharpen, I'm really going to sharpen this section here because I know that this is like the most important part about this relationship or, you know, whatnot.
0: Was the first sentence that you wrote of this novel, the first sentence of the novel?
1: Not the first draft. It took a couple drafts. The you know the the first chapter started in various different places, and and I think it at some point I had to. I think everybody maybe when you first write, and I think when I was first trying to to write this novel. I really wanted that first sentence to be a knockout sentence because I think every reads, like, dream of having, like, the perfect sentence for <laughs> a novel so that people pick it up and they're like, oh, this is amazing. And then, sure. you know, they read the next sentence and they're like, this is, I'm just going to keep reading. This is fantastic. And that's, like, a lovely, like, fantasy to have, but as a like you're putting a lot of pressure on that yourself if like you're sitting down in the first first draft and you're like i'm not going to move on until this first sentence is perfect and i've heard of writers that do that although i think they're probably lying because they want us all to believe <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know for me i finally i did have that pressure i sat down and i was like no i got him you know this first sentence has to be good and i just sat there for too long and i was like you know what nobody has to see any of this let me just start Right. And so I think it took me multiple revisions before I got to what I had for the opening. And I think in part it's because you really need to know kind of what the end of it is and where your characters are, especially for me with this novel's rotating first person perspective. And so until I really, really know what the character is going to experience in in detail, in depth. Like having their thoughts like, oh, what are the first things that I want the reader to encounter from this character that encompasses this whole story? I don't feel like you can really know that until you've fixed and gotten everything working in the rest of the novel, and then you can come back to the start and really get the start to to be what it should be to uphold what happens over the course of the story.
0: As a Hemingway reader, I also think that the way that you use sharks is pretty interesting. Uh, In well, the old man in the sea or islands in the stream sharks are rapacious and villains of the sea and your novel pre- presents it in a different way
1: yeah yeah absolutely and i have read the old man in the sea and i actually read it i when i was studying I, I mentioned this at the hemingway award as well that i it was also a book that i used to study spanish i was living in central america and found a copy of the old man in the sea in spanish And because his language, because Hemingway's language, because he intentionally makes his language very clean in terms of it's very minimal, it is also a great way to learn another language because you don't have to deal with a bunch of tricky adverbs and adjectives and like complicated sentence clauses that have passed, you know, changed the tense over them or whatever. Like none of those things are in there. So they're actually great books to read when you're studying another language because you get all of the good stuff without it being too complicated from a language perspective Uh, so i've read i've actually read the old man in the sea in both spanish and english and it's very true like the the sharks are like deep villains in the old man in the sea (laughs) but you know in 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 hawaii right like in ancient mythology of the islands you know where i was born and raised sharks and all animals really that are that are kind of central to hawaiian mythology occupy a very ambivalent place meaning there's a sense of of kinship with those animals and they can also come on they can also come to represent which they do in this novel your like the souls of your ancestor can speak and act through those animals right and at the same time yes those animals can also be aggressors and they can be dangerous and so in you know in hawaiian mythology sharks are both revered and loved and respected but also feared right and at times can be aggressors and can be things that are very combative but i think that there was space for that ambivalence right whereas i feel like in western unfortunately not only because of something like the old man in the sea but also jaws i think jaws in particular is like this awful and i think peter Benchley, my understanding and i've only read so much about this but my understanding is that peter Benchley later in his life very much regretted the way that jaws ended up capturing the imagination of americans in particular in a way that made sharks out to be these incredibly evil things right and i think he later on he like started a foundation to try and prevent the like wholesale slaughter of sharks and things like that um this novel I when I was writing it I really wanted the I wanted to present sharks in a new light in a light that I feel like is a more a more truthful light which is one that it's like yeah they're they're scary they're very they can be very dangerous in certain conditions to humans but there are many situations in which they're not dangerous to humans but you know a really funny story and my wife and I were talking about this the other day and she had seen something funny I think on Instagram or something where somebody was like you know I really feel for sharks because everybody demonizes them but can you imagine if like fried chicken came skateboarding across your living room like what would you do <laughs> like, That's, no, exactly right And then, even those surfers that have been attacked by sharks that were like but this is i'm in their home right like i don't hate sharks because yeah. a shark attacked me like i'm living i came to i've been playing in their living room and it's well, the same thing where you're like yeah like fried chicken skated across yeah. <laughs> room. like is something gonna think you're evil if you go after it
0: well, isn't the duality of sharks just like the duality of nature? And even especially we can uh, caric- caricature Hawaii as paradise, but there's also uh, dangerous weather conditions and and natural phenomena in Hawaii too, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things that is, I think that viewing, viewing the world through kind of a, tradition, traditional, like the, the, the sort of Anglo-Christian tradition of the United States that, that kind of perpetuated the, the early history of the United States from the perspective of America, United States of America versus all the first nations that were here before you know settlers showed up and colonized and all of the awful parts of Western history or United States history that have led us to where we are now those traditions and i would say particularly like in the the sort of christian individualist american tradition of of man versus world or man versus nature there there's there's like an implicit value system that would place nature in opposition to humans or believe somehow that humans can that humans can exist beyond the normal terms of nature right? And I don't think that's the case. And I think when people are put in situations in which you have to experience nature in its most raw form, like if you go on like a minimalist camping trip or something where you're really out in the wilderness and there's nothing, you have no tether to like, quote unquote, civilization to save you, you can get in these situations where you can feel like, oh, I am just a thing existing in a much larger system. And this larger system does not care about me. I do not have any special dominion over it it could wipe me out in a second and i'm like any other animal living in this space you know any any other living thing whether we're talking about a tree or an animal or whatever like they're all we're all living in this larger system in which there's a certain amount of of i would say um just like irrelevance of any one particular thing right, right. we're all existing in this larger system in which at any given moment you know a person's life can be on no different terms than an animal's life when like an antelope gets chased down by a lion it's part of that system and it doesn't you know and, and so I think that human life can be reduced to those terms as well in a larger natural system. And it's hard for people to deal with. I think a lot of people want to think of humans as being so special that we can transcend those boundaries, but that's not the reality.
0: Now, that's a great point. Uh, Kavai, would you mind reading your sentence uh, from cle- A Clean, Well-Lighted Place one more time for us?
1: Some lived in it and never felt it, but he knew it all was nada y pues nada y nada y nada.
0: Kavai Strong-Washburn, thank you so much for joining us on One True Podcast. It was a pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on OneTruePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is supported by the Hemingway Society, the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon, and this is One True Podcast.